Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking about socialism in America, its history, its Bernie-centric present, and what might happen in the future. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. We recorded this conversation last week, and it's with Gary Gerstel, familiar guest on Talking Politics, and Adam Gedichu from the University of Chicago, who was in Cambridge, who's very involved, as you'll hear later, in Chicago politics. And in Chicago, there are now socialists winning elections. This is a conversation partly about Bernie Sanders, but mainly about what socialism might mean in America, how it might be different from socialism in other places, and could it really, really win on the national stage? One way we could start this is with a distinction that came up in an interview with the editor of Jacobin magazine, the widely read left-wing magazine in the US. And it was an interview in The New Yorker with Isaac Chotiner. And they talked in the end about ways of drawing the distinction between a Bernie Sanders kind of candidacy and an Elizabeth Warren candidacy. And the way this was done was Bernie is a democratic socialist and Elizabeth Warren is a social democrat. So then to a European audience, this also then gets complicated again because social democracy is a in some ways, quite a European concept, but it means different things here. But Gary, is that, I mean, in the US context, is that a meaningful distinction? Can you say that the democratic socialist wants to abolish capitalism and the social democrat wants to reform it? I think you could say that once uh, in the history of American socialism, but not today. I think the differences between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are not that great. I think they put their emphasis on different sorts of policies. I think Elizabeth Warren is more focused on politics and reforming the Senate and on imposing taxes on corporations and eliminating debt, things you can do politically. I think Sanders has a conception of socialism as a revolution, which comes from an older sense of socialism. But if you ask what is his sense of revolution other than being elected, It's pretty modest. It would conform to what the New Deal was. It would be strengthening labor. It would be strengthening the ability of the poor and the exploited in American society to do better to to handle their own affairs. Uh, Here's a good example of one difference between them. Elizabeth Warren would like to break up Amazon, and Bernie Sanders would like to empower the workers of Amazon to take on corporate power themselves in the context of those workplaces. Now, historically, Democratic socialism did mean something revolutionary. When Eugene Debs was running for president and he talked about himself as a democratic socialist, if we ask what does that mean, it means eliminating private enterprise and corporate entities from the economy and having the government in the name of the people take them over. And the big dispute in the early 20th century was between the disputes on the left was between those socialists who thought it could be done democratically, which was the Debsian socialist movement, which peaked in 1912 when he got a million votes for president. And the alternative in the US and elsewhere became what we call communism. And the antagonist there was Lenin, who said, we want revolution, but this can never come through a political process that has to come through revolutionary struggle and through a dictatorship of the proletariat that will take charge of the economy and the polity and civil society and everything else. And at some point in the very distant future, it will wither away. This was a distinction in the early 20th century. You can hear echoes of revolution in Sanders' talk. He's an heir to, to the democratic socialist tradition of Debs. But if you ask, does he want to extinguish private enterprise? Does he want to have the state take over corporations? I would say no, and neither does Elizabeth Warren. Adam, is it a meaningful distinction for you, social democracy and democratic socialism? Well, I wanted to pick up on one thing Gary said, which I think the one difference that seems really salient for me is the fact that Elizabeth Warren very explicitly came out in 2018 and 
denied having any commitment to socialism. She said, I'm I'm a committed capitalist. I want accountable capitalism. I want restrained capitalism, but I don't understand myself to be a socialist. Now, I agree that Bernie doesn't seem to have a kind of, he's not calling for the expropriation of private property or state control of the economy. But one thing that he does seem to retain is a commitment to socialism as a kind of political movement. So the language of revolution, you know, what came out of the 2016 election is the kind of the Our Revolution movement, which has tried to build a kind of grassroots project in a variety of local contexts that does try to push the agenda he's outlined, Medicare for all, free public college. So it does seem to me that where on policy, and I think we can talk about this, in some ways, I feel like Elizabeth Warren has come out for very concrete policy proposals and in some ways has been pushing Bernie to be much more concrete in a variety of areas or to, to even take up questions that he hadn't taken up in 2016. But I think Bernie Sanders comes out of a sort of grassroots movement politics in a way that Elizabeth Warren doesn't. And so I think that seems to be a really important difference between the two of them. And if you take that distinction that Gary drew between wanting to break up Amazon Mm -hmm. or whichever of the big tech firms you take and wanting to empower the workers to take control, that is potentially a big difference. I mean, after all, breaking up monopolist or semi-monopolist, that can be Teddy Roosevelt, right? I mean, and he wasn't a socialist, I don't think. He was not. <laughs> he was not, right. So, so in, 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 you know, going back to that history with Debs and so on. Yeah. On one level, because Elizabeth Warren is just much more concrete about this, sometimes she sounds more radical because there is something about the thought of taking these giant corporations and breaking them up that sounds like, you know, the state's going to have to do a heck of a lot. But on another account, the really radical idea is workers' control. And workers' control is a socialist idea. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. And it, I think, goes back again to this question about what Elizabeth Warren has, even in her time as um, senator, the kinds of policies she's pushed. So if you think of something like her big signature project has been the you know Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, a really, I mean, very important achievement, an attempt to restrain predatory credit and lending, but it is a it is a way of using a kind of bureaucratic state apparatus to constrain private actors. You know, she she did a lot of work to make sure that that agency wouldn't be a politicized agency. Actually, so there's only on her view there would only have been one person appointed, and everyone else would have been a kind of career bureaucrat. So she does have this, I think, a little bit of a commitment to depoliticization in some ways as a way of insulating or restraining private power. That can be a powerful tool, especially in that kind of context, say in the context of finance. But I think what's appealing about the Bernie Sanders project is, in some ways, it's a kind of push to politicize areas that might not have been politicized, right, and to demand certain kinds of democratic control or reimagine democratic control. And Gary, does that have echoes in American history that the big distinction here is between the people who want to politicise more and the people who, in a sense, want to administratively depoliticise. Because in the UK context, you could have a kind of Fabian administrative state which stands in real contrast to the, the revolutionary politics that went alongside it. Yes, and there are quite a number of socialists in American history or quasi-socialists in America who would have felt very comfortable, who did feel very comfortable within a Fabian framework. In other words, they would have the tools to manage capitalism on behalf of the people. This was an egalitarian vision, and it was also a technocratic one. And that tradition within American socialism and what is more commonly called American progressivism is very strong. The hardcore socialists would have said from years past, and you can hear this echo in Bernie's politics, is that socialism is unimaginable without a labor movement and without the workers in some meaningful way rising up. I think Bernie has a sense of the importance of that, and that's why he talks about the workers here and the workers there. What he hasn't figured out, and it's not his fault because I'm not sure any socialist of the 21st century has figured it out, is what takes the historic role of the labor movement and providing a kind of social ballast and social movement 
to bring socialism into existence. We, we saw beginnings of new movements in Occupy Wall Street and everything that came out of that, but they were so anti-organizational in orientation, it's hard to imagine what institutional forms that kind of social movement would take. So Bernie calls for this revolutionary social movement, but in a sense, he's speaking to a wasteland in the sense that the labor movement is a shell of its former self. In 1945, 35% of American workers belonged to labor unions. Today, it hovers around 11%. And if we take public workers out of that, those who work for state, city, or federal government, it's hovering around 6 or 7%. It still has monetary clout, but in terms of calling forth a labor movement that can take to the streets, go on strike, Take over Amazon. Take over Amazon. We are some distance from that. And this is a puzzle that 21st century socialists spent a lot of time thinking about but haven't figured out a solution for. I mean, one of the striking things, though, about the Trump presidency is how many strikes we've actually seen in the United States over the last couple of years. So the number of teacher strikes, for instance, in contexts where there isn't a right, to, uh, you know, there's right to work laws where unions do not have the power of collective bargaining. So uh, West Virginia really started off this kind of launch of of a series of teachers strikes in red states culminating in this very big victory in Los Angeles. And so I, I do think this is a real challenge for kind of the left in the U.S. And it's, it is a challenge about reimagining who the working class of the United States is, right? So one of the things that was very striking about the 2016 election was both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton gave their kind of big introducing their economic policy speeches in front of, you know, in industrial cities. And it's this kind of fantasy or an imagination or a holding on to the industrial working class as still the heartbeat of the American working class, which just isn't, you know, I think in the United States, there's 80,000 steel workers, but 800,000 home health aides, right? And that's a, a working class that's women, that's women of color primarily. So this is what's so interesting about, I think, the teacher strike, the possible nurses strike that's going to end New York is it's the kind of balance has shifted or is shifting towards a working class that's really service sector education, where much of the growth in the economy has happened. So And these have been historically unorganized labor forces. So part of that challenge, I think, is like imagining that to be the working class and thinking about what kind of labor organizing, what kind of movement politics would emerge from those kinds of economic contexts rather than historical instance of the industrial working class. And in a way, that that is part of the challenge, isn't it? Because, I mean, we'll come on to other questions to agenda and Bernie Sanders' candidacy, but just the fact that if this has its roots in kind of Eugene Debs' socialism, I'm sure there are ways of telling that as a history of gender too, but the proletariat was the male industrial working class. And on so many different levels, that is not a way you can think about 21st century politics. Mm-hmm. That's, that's correct. And if you think of the aesthetics and iconography of the classic labor movement, it's the bare-chested white man bursting with muscle and energy ready to storm the factory and literally with a tool belt, with a tool belt and take it over and, and plant themselves in their place. This is the socialist realism of the 30s, which went far beyond socialism per se. If you visit Washington, D.C. and look at all the iconography and all the murals done as part of the New Deal, these are the images of American workers that you see everywhere. And also, it's it's not just the maleness of it, the whiteness of it, a uh, sense of industrial muscularity. It's also the change in location of industry, uh, a time when industry was centralized, when factories were behemoths, where people lived in close proximity to each other. There was a social geography of labor that is largely gone. Now, we have a word for to describe the working class of the 21st century. It's a very good word, precariat, as opposed to proletariat. But given the dispersal, given the variety of people who make up the working class, the older strategies and conceptions of how to do labor don't apply in the same way and have to be reinvented. And one of the million-dollar questions of our time is whether the beginnings that you have noticed will become something bigger, larger, consequential to give Bernie the kind of social movement and perhaps revolutionary movement that he wants behind his back. 
Because if, if you go back to that question that one difference between Sanders and Warren is how they might think about something like Amazon, what would be the iconography of the workers taking over Amazon? That's one question, because it's not going to be kind of muscle-bound men with tool belts. I mean, it's got to look different. But also, as everyone knows, Amazon doesn't have that many employees, but those it does have are working under grim conditions in semi-robotized workplaces. Now, presumably, the robots aren't going to be part of this, but how the workers play that role as the kind of tools of emancipation under Amazon industrial conditions, what would the workers taking over Amazon mean? I mean, presumably it would mean they wouldn't work under those grim conditions and they wouldn't kind of have toilet breaks on the robot's timetable. But what would the poster be? Well, you could throw sand into the gears. That's an old strategy. On the, on that's not taking it over so much. <laughs> well, but it's, it's shutting it down, yeah. right? I mean, there's that. So I think you don't begin with taking it over. You begin with forming a union and, and getting the right to organize and then having discussions with the employers if you want to have a negotiated settlement and improving the conditions of workers without actually taking over Amazon by the workers themselves. It's not clear that a majority of the Amazon workers would want to do that. There can then be meaningful discussions about everything from wages to working conditions and speed of production and degree of surveillance under which under which people have to work. Suddenly, all sorts of issues that had been under uh, the unitary control of management now become subject to some kind of discussion and negotiation. And if that fails, historically, the role of workers and unions has, to, has been to go on strike and shut down the possibility of production until some kind of agreement can be reached. So I think those tools are still relevant. And there is actually a rather rich grab bag of tools and ideas from 150 years of experience that workers have had that are relevant to this moment. So I don't have trouble with Amazon. I think Uber presents... Or home care workers yeah. Pre- yeah, yeah. present a, a bigger challenge. Good point. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm trying to find the one, but it, you know, it's, there is yeah. a because you know the other classic idea is workers on the board, right? That's a, a, a deep rooted idea in, in in the current British Labour Party and the kind of Corbyn movement. This is a big part of it: corporate governance, democratizing it, so democratic socialism, but also socializing it through representation. Again, it depends a lot on how these corporations are governed and the market conditions under which they operate, how much you can do. But that's a part of Bernie's program too, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what about Uber, right? Yeah, how, what, what, what would a socialized Uber look like? Yeah, that's a good... I was actually going to say something about the Amazon example, maybe because it looks like an older, still looks like an older model is an easy one to think with. But this is a classic question of organizing. Like, how do you get people to imagine that their terms of work ought to be up for negotiation, right? And there's a really interesting example out of, I think it was Minneapolis, where part of what initially the union effort, the organizing effort tried to do, it's just largely immigrant workers, I think largely Somali workers. So, you know, things like, do people have breaks to pray? Can they use their language on the job? Which don't seem like bread and butter. That's not the thing we imagine unions to have done. But it's like, how does a labor movement speak to a kind of radically altered working population? So I think that has to be part of the effort. All the Uber and other shared economy, they raise a variety of questions in part because there's a whole legal debate in American labor law about whether they in fact are workers. They're understood to be contractors, right? And so there is a whole set of debates to have about the transformation of American labor law, about who gets even recognized as a a worker. That's one thing. But it's not clear to me why there can't, there's lots of taxi unions in Chicago and New York, and why that can't be a model that could be expanded and applied to, you know, Uber and Lyft drivers. So another question on the kind of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren division, and, and we've already illustrated it. So Bernie is Bernie. I was trying to think, are there other figures in either American or broadly socialist history who have a kind of cuddly first name? I mean, Debs was Debs, right? He wasn't... Did people wasn't just, cuddly. No, and people didn't call him Gene. No. Right. But Bernie is Bernie. And we, we say Elizabeth Warren, yeah. and we say Bernie. So if you took them, I know that they're... they're different ages. I mean, Bernie is, Bernie Sanders is, I think, 15 years older. Is that about right? I mean, but anyway, it's, uh, so they're not exactly the same generation. So you can't say like, where were they both in the 1960s? Because Elizabeth Warren would have been much younger. But Bernie Sanders also has a kind of countercultural history. 
Right? He comes out of a 60s, 70s, another kind of leftism, which is that countercultural leftism. It's a lifestyle thing. And Jeremy Corbyn, there's a bit of that too. A sort of lifestyle thing, certain kind of social attitudes, including attitudes to sex and to women and so on, which is quite remote from the 21st century. It doesn't seem to have done him any harm yet. I mean, relative to you know, Joe Biden also comes out of a very different world and it, that is doing him harm. Why is countercultural Bernie Sanders cuddly? Because he doesn't, you know, on some accounts of his history, he's not that cuddly. I think it was earlier this year, there was a picture or video of him found in the Soviet Union on kind of his honeymoon. And I think there's all these moments where I think people imagine, the right imagines this is the gotcha moment, like this is the picture or this is the image that's going to sink the campaign. And then you find everyone loves it. Like, they're like, this is great. It's being circulated. Part of this conversation is about the generational shift. But, you know, for a millennial generation who's, you know, I was born in 1988. So you don't remember the wall coming down. Yeah, don't remember the wall. But the Cold War is not a thing that played any role in my kind of conception of politics. And so... My whole life has been in the kind of post-Cold War moment. So there is this sense that a whole set of possibilities, like looking back on the 60s and 70s, it feels like there were a whole range of political possibilities, not just in the United States, but around the world. And so the relationship to that period is one of openness, possibility. There was a kind of generativity that seems like our experience of our period is one of closure, actually. So I think there is this kind of, I don't know, romanticism about... Sorry, does that extend to the, the old Soviet Union? I mean, so he goes no, on honeymoon no, no. to the Soviet Union. Yeah. Millennials don't think, oh, <laughs> oh what a yeah, great yeah, place yeah. to have a honeymoon. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> if only no. we could do that. If only we could have, bring back the Soviet No, No, I don't think it's about any kind of nostalgia for the Soviet Union as such, but a sense that there were multiple trajectories for politics to have gone. And there's a sense in which where we ended up was not inevitable. And so possibly the future could be open in a variety of ways too. So it isn't a nostalgia that's about going back or something like that, but a sense of tapping into the sense of possibility that feels once again like a real moment of openness in this moment than it did kind of even. And and is that partly the depoliticized, repoliticized thing in a sense that wanting to repoliticize things is opening up that possibility and there is still in the slightly more administrative technocratic version of it a sense of closing down? Is that? Well, I, I don't know. It might be just much more personal than that in some sense. So you know, I just said I was born in 88. I finished college right when the recession was happening. I had friends who had jobs in New York where the firms just closed and they no longer had jobs to go to. And, you know, I think this is really about the Occupy moment and the sense of, for a lot of us, that was a real moment in which we came into political consciousness, right? And had to reckon with the kind of the failure collapse of a set of things we thought were guaranteed. Like you you go to a good school, you have a job because you did the right internship the summer before. And then all of a sudden that was no longer true. Right. And I think the experience of that in the sense that the political establishment seemed unable to really deal with the magnitude of the crisis is really what kind of opened up, I think, for me and others, a sense of real political possibility. I'll say two things about Bernie. Authenticity and New York. I don't think he's cuddly, actually. He's he's not cuddly. There is an affection for him, but I wouldn't you wouldn't want to hug or hang out and do small talk with Bernie. That's that's not who he is. He is authentic and in his own way uncompromising. And so in the long night of left and socialist politics after the Soviet Union collapsed. And at a time when all economic socialism disappeared from American life and neoliberalism conquered just about everything, including the Democratic Party, Bernie was there speaking his language and and speaking as a socialist and getting elected to various positions in in Vermont and, and being a real person and dealing with real political issues while clinging to this vision. And I think he's among the young who see the older generation as having compromised so much, which is what the Clintons represent to them. To have someone like Bernie who represented authenticity, who didn't compromise, was a kind of inspiration and a revelation and someone to rally around. Now, 
there is a, a softness on the Soviet Union in his past, and you can be sure that the Republican Party has computers full of material on him, and their silence on this has been extraordinary. But the Conservative Party had those discs and that material on Jeremy Corbyn ready to roll out in 2017, and it made not the blindest bit of difference. It may not make a difference. But, but we're a different country. But the UK was also not the center of the Cold War, and it may be that the Cold War is going to fall flat. Part of the generational difference is that the younger generation today has no knowledge of the Cold War, and communism pro or con really means very little. They grew up in a world with the absence of a left. That's what defines their existence. And so to have someone speaking from the past, but also updating into the present, like Sanders, was a great revelation. And he did a kind of amazing thing. He brought socialism back into American politics as something that you could organize around for the first time in 70 years. You have to go back to the 1930s and 40s to find people talking about socialism as frankly as Sanders did in 2016. The other part of him is New York. Uh, he's a New York City guy. That's his culture. He's in your face. No affectation, no delicacy. If he doesn't like what you say, he's got to get right up in your face and tell you. That's one reason why he's not cuddly. So his cultural style is not of the countercultural left, even though there are stories about him in the 80s writing about peace and love and sex and all these other things. That's not the Sanders you see today. I see a New York kind of guy that also speaks to a kind of truth teller. I, I may not be very refined, but I'm going to tell it like it is, and I speak the truth. And there's a frankness to that kind of delivery, which is in great contrast to Elizabeth Warren from Oklahoma and Texas. There's a huge regional difference, which I think is a source of his charisma. Of course, it's always interesting when a New Yorker makes it big on the national stage in America because America has love-hate relationship with New York. But this is a case where a New Yorker is triumphing on the political stage or getting the kind of attention nationally that a New York politician has not had in decades. On the grounds that Donald Trump is not a politician? Well, except for Donald Trump. Because he's, he's had some attention. Well, I think Sanders and Trump would be a really interesting debate. Well, someone said it would be like two old men on the bus in Queens just shouting at each other. Yeah, well, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be two interesting old and men they're, And they're the really bus. old men. <laughs> that was 2016. I mean, now it'd be like... <laughs> and they will fire away at each other. And I, I, and I think the, the engagement between them will be, will be quite interesting. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I want to come on in a second to questions about, because it's not just the United States here, there are local variations too, but Adam, just one more question. I mean, is there anything from Bernie Sanders' past that could do him harm? Because there are there are attitudinal questions about the generational gap. I mean, he do, I think he does have a different worldview, a different attitude to you know, some basic sort of social questions about gender and other things. Yeah. And I'm sure it's kind of taken for granted that, that, that it's not going to kind of completely tally with 21st century or millennial sensibilities. But is he invulnerable to a kind of stuff that may well do Biden terminal damage? I think he has a kind of, he has a stubbornness. And and one way this recently came out is there's been a kind of debate among all of the Democratic candidates about this question of reparations for slavery, racial injustice. And, you know, people from Kamala Harris all the way through have come out in some way for something like reparations. And he just wouldn't do it for a really long time. And it just seemed like, why are you making this the sticking point, right? You know, he's insisted in 2016, he, he believes in a kind of universal programs, but it did seem like it was a really missed opportunity to kind of highlight the ways in which his his socialist project could be really compatible with claims of reparations, racial justice. And he eventually came on, you know, but in a way that felt too late, belated after the fact. And it sort of reinforces an idea that lots of people have that he ignores questions of race and gender and doesn't think about what is 
named identity politics. So, you know, I wish he had kind of taken this on board in a, instead of defensively and belatedly, like really thought through what what this could have looked like from his perspective. And something else he has in common with Donald Trump, maybe it's a New York thing, maybe it's an old man thing, but he doesn't apologize, right? He doesn't self-doubt. It's not his thing. He's He knows what he knows. He thinks what he thinks. And he's not going to yeah. change. There's a real stubbornness there, real stubbornness. If I can say something related but different about Sanders and his possibilities, just to put this in a little bit more historical perspective, a socialist in America has never risen to the position that Sanders is seeking for himself, a nomination on one of the major parties in the United States. Let alone the presidency itself. Let alone the presidency. That has never happened. It's led some people to conclude that socialism never mattered in America. That's not true. It has mattered profoundly in times and places. But its historical role has been to so shake up the political process so as to compel candidates in the center to move left and to incorporate demands of the left into their program. This is what happened in progressivism with Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, both of them. This is what happened in the 1930s when the socialists and communists in the labor movement and outside drew Franklin Roosevelt to the left. And the New Deal that he built and that lasted and that many people in America celebrate today is a product of that moment of insurrection in the mid-30s. Without that moment of insurrection, there may have been a New Deal, but it would not be the New Deal that shaped American politics for the subsequent 50 years. And just to be clear, I mean, what was the pressure point here? Because you can pressurize parties by essentially threatening them internally to take over or to to win an internal contest. You can pressurize them by threatening to take their voters away from them and getting them to vote in a different way. Or you can just challenge them in the court of public opinion. Well, there were populist parties in the 30s that were threatening Roosevelt from a, a complicated position of left-right populism that we're coming to recognize I mean, as being... Threatening to the point costing him an election. Costing him an election. Right. And he was, that he was very worried about Huey Long, governor of Louisiana, who whose signature claim in 1935, before he was assassinated, was share the wealth. Everyone in America should join a share the wealth club, and that's got to cure America of its ills. This was the person Roosevelt was really scared about beating him in 1936, and it would have been a challenge from the Democratic Party. But even more than that, it was the labor insurgencies, the strikes, the confrontations with corporations, mass organization, millions of people going on strike, and culminating in workers taking over plants in Flint, Michigan, and other places of General Motors, which was then the largest and most powerful corporation in the world, and occupying those plants for more than a month until General Motors capitulated. Roosevelt read this insurgency as marking a profound shift in American politics to the left. And in order for him to survive and keep the center and his position in American politics, he felt he had to accommodate a militant labor movement that he had no innate sympathy with. The question for Sanders is whether he can break that mold, whether his function is to once again pressure from the left and compel a candidate of the center, in this case Biden, to move much further left than he otherwise would be willing to go, or whether he can be a mold breaker in the way that Trump was a mold breaker and bend the Democratic Party to his will, rather than simply acting as a powerful force on the side, shaping the contours of politics, but not coming into office himself. Because in a way, the, the political model for him is the William Jennings Bryan model, which is the farmer's populist takeover of the Democratic Party by winning the nomination. It doesn't end in the presidency. Yes. But it wasn't, I mean, Brian wasn't trying to pressure them. He was trying to take it over. Yes. And, the two and he failed. I mean, he succeeded in taking it over, but he failed in. And, right. and the next Democratic president is Woodrow Wilson, who is nothing like right. Brian. And the two plausibly left political candidates, left using a generous term, who did get nominated by the Democratic Party, the first was William Jennings Bryan several times after the populist insurgency. But he wasn't a socialist, right? He was not a socialist. And the other is McGovern. Who was also not a socialist. Who was not a socialist. But Just checking. <laughs> yes, these were not socialists, but uh, one was a populist and one embraced the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the new left of the 1960s. They were yeah. the shock. new leftist, yeah. Of George McGovern, but they were not, he was not a leftist in a socialist sense. So those are the two instances where the Democratic Party did nominate a person of the left for the presidency and both of them got crushed in 
general elections. And this is the tide that Sanders is working against. It's not to say it can't happen. It's just to say that it has not yet happened in American history. One last question on this for both of you. It, the other possible model is the kind of Barry Goldwater model. So I'm not saying like Sanders wins, he gets crushed by Trump. And I mean, who knows what would happen? We're not making predictions here. But is, is there another way that this works, which is you have the kind of the person who's a little bit ahead of his, in this case, time, but essentially lays the ground for a complete shift in the sort of ideological balance within the party. So maybe Bernie Sanders does not end up as president, but a socialist does. And at that point, people say it was Bernie's failed campaign that laid the groundwork. Or does that only happen on the right? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the 2016 election is already having some of these effects of the pushing, right? It's really, again, surprising that the Green New Deal is a program that everybody in the primary has felt like they had to sign on to, right? Or opening this question of corporate taxes, taxes on the super rich, like all of these, I think, are now on the table in a way in 2020 that they really weren't on the table before Bernie ran for the 2016 nomination. So I'm really excited he's running. I'm excited both him and Elizabeth Warren are in the race. It's hard for me to imagine you know, in some ways, I say this as a supporter, but how, even if he manages to do it, how he would shape the party in its current configuration to push the program he has set out to. Even in the context of the House, it's been really interesting to watch the kind of insurgent candidates, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and others, really struggle with the kind of mainstream leadership of the party. And the party in various ways trying to constrain and limit the possibility of insurgent candidates to win or to, to contend in the primaries. So I think the process of the internal transformation of the Democratic Party is a very long one. So it's a, a huge start. And it's um, even the last four years have been transformative in a variety of ways. But I think this question of okay, Bernie Sanders gets in office, how is he going to get Medicare for all through this incredibly conservative set of institutions? So you think the transformation has to happen in a variety of different places in some ways before we can get the kind of socialist program we would want to see. And is there a way, were he to go all the way, that on his coattails, a raft of Bernie Sanders socialist Democrats would wind up in Congress too? Is there a kind of tail behind him of people who could make the difference in Congress? Or is he, does he not have that kind of, I mean, he has supporters and admirers among this younger generation, but does he have a kind of structure within the party to drag people in with him? That's a peculiarity of American politics that a million people have signed up to work for Sanders on his campaign, but there's no flesh and blood socialist party to organize them into some or labor party organize them institutionally in some way and and to run candidates so it's a free for all i don't expect a big raft of candidates i think there'll be some here and there i will also say however that if you think of that about when the big changes in american politics have have come it's common for the for congress to be clotted to slow things down it's a place where a lot of good policies go to die and historically if something has got to be pushed through there has to be a social movement allied to a political process that is perceived as having strength, moral authority, people in the streets. The big changes of the New Deal are unimaginable without the labor insurgency of that time. The Great Society of Lyndon Johnson and the civil rights legislation is unimaginable without the civil rights movement and rank-and-file militancy in, in the streets. Social movements formally separate from the political process, but able to bring various kinds of pressure to bear on the political process. This is the nature of American politics because the political system deliberately fragments and dissipates energy. And it's opposed to grand ideas like the Green New Deal. It's, it's meant to slow the Green New Deal down for 50 or 100 years before it's passed, if it, it's ever passed. So for something like that to move through, you're going to need mass demonstrations, mass movements that are vital adjuncts. Sanders actually understands this in ways that Warren does not. And when he calls for revolution, that's what he has in mind. He understands, I don't know if you can articulate this, but he understands that when the left has been successful in American politics, it's Electoral politics has never been enough. There's been a need for another 
movement that formally stands outside politics but is thoroughly interwoven with politics that has the capacity to compel many people in America, many politicians who ordinarily wouldn't join that movement to say, well, for the sake of order or, or understanding or decency or survival, this is something we have to do. Adam, you mentioned Chicago, where we talked about this a few months ago, um, where you're currently based. Since we spoke, some democratic socialists have been elected um, as older. So they're they're called older men, but they are all women? Not all women, no, not all women. There is six democratic socialists, candidates who were endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America branch in Chicago. There was already one, just one re-election, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, and then a, a slate of five others, I think all people of color. So again, I think this kind of the question of identity politics and its relationship to socialist politics, you know, you can't have that bifurcation necessarily in Chicago is a good indication of this. Now, what I think is really important about Chicago as a scene and a site of American politics in the contemporary moment is that it's precisely a place where this question of social movement politics and electoral politics have had to go hand in hand. So these candidates come out of various kinds of movements. The candidate I worked for on the south side of Chicago, Jeanette Taylor, for instance, has been involved in many years in a fight to preserve public education in the south side of Chicago. In 2015, she was part of a group that did a 34-day hunger strike to keep a public school open in um, Diet High School on the south side of Chicago and is currently involved in a a fight around getting a community benefits agreement for the Obama Presidential Center, which is coming to the south side. So a lot of these candidates came out of kind of having been involved in movement politics, whether it's around rent control, public education. Um, And there was a real connection here between very progressive labor unions, the Chicago Teachers Union, SEIU Healthcare, which endorsed these candidates, which provided a large share of the funding, Black Lives Matter folks and others were really involved in in these campaigns. Bernie Sanders' Our Revolution was, you know, part of the group. So going to do the kind of door knocking for these campaigns, what was real, it's like Chicago is a very segregated city and you would go and and the the campaign I was working for is is in Ward 20, a South Side neighborhood, predominantly black neighborhood, just uh, south of the University of Chicago, really, really impoverished community. And in these kind of door knocking sessions, you know, you would have people come from really all over the city, members of the Chicago Teachers Union, folks who happen to live in the neighborhood, who've known Jeanette for, you know, many, many years, and college students, both at the University of Chicago and other universities across the city, high schoolers at the high school uh, Jeanette fought to keep open. So you could really see the, the possibility of kind of how a set of social movements could really intersect with electoral politics and and shift and shift the terrain. And is that radically different from what people know, as far as they know about Chicago politics, which is the Obama story, which is the conventional term for it is community organizing, leading into a certain kind of political presence in the city and then and then statewide and then nationally. When you talk about social movements, do you mean something very different from that story? I mean, obviously, there's a lot to do with people and personalities, and Obama's coming from a different yeah. place. He's not coming from a, uh, yeah. a socialist background. No. But people think that he learned his politics in Chicago, and he learned it on the streets doing organizing, yeah. but that's not the same as being involved in a social movement. Well, or I or think, is it? You know, for folks, for folks like Jeanette... I think what makes it different for her is that she lives on the south side of Chicago. She raised all her children there. She is a community organizer, sure, but a community organizer who has had to live with the conditions of the city in a way that Obama certainly didn't, even when he was a community organizer. And I think what's really important in some ways... This kind of comes out of the movement for black lives, which I really think its origins in the Obama era should be a thing we think really seriously about. The first black president gives rise to a resurgent black politics that's taking the streets, you know, that has kind of foregone the possibility or or come to terms with the limits of the kind of electoral scene, right? And so this is the kind of the social movements that have emerged in Chicago in this moment are ones that 
come out of the, actually the failures, the limits of the Obama era that are dealing with, you know, the kind of crisis of privatization of public education, criminalization of black communities, continued underemployment. So we're really reckoning with the kind of limits of the Obama years, but more broadly, the limits of Democratic Party politics. I mean, our mayor has been for a long time, of course, one of Obama's important advisors, Rahm Emanuel. So. Gary, is there any sense that where Chicago leads the nation follows? You, you, so when we started this, you showed us a map in your your textbook of American history showing uh, what was the year? 1912. 1912, where there were socialist representatives around the United States, not in Chicago, a lot in Illinois, and in lots of surprising places too. That was when socialism was more widespread. Is Chicago in any sense a kind of bellwether for, not for the country as a whole, but for other urban uh, areas? It's long been a center of reform, socialist and anarchist agitation, the struggle for the eight-hour day and the infamous Haymarket bombings at one of the defining moments in history of radicalism and anti-radicalism in America in 1886 happened in Chicago. Many reformers there, many socialists, Jane Addams, John Dewey, Clarence Darrow, a very distinguished history of reform and insurgency, but also Chicago is known for having incredibly powerful conservative political machines. And so in the decade of labor insurgency in the 1930s. It was not a leader. The older labor federation, the more conservative labor federation was more powerful than the insurgent federation. And of course, one of the big challenges faced by the insurgents who just won is whether they can take down what is arguably historically, or at least in the last 70 years, the most powerful urban municipal machine in the United States. And it's a machine not known for its democracy. It's a machine known for delivering services to certain groups of citizens and excluding others. There was an earlier black mayor who did not break the machine, Harold Washington. And I think although the, he was he died early on in his second term, right? And so who knows, yes. right? That story could have gone a different way. But a big question is whether this insurgency is going to be able to change patterns and habits of Chicago politics that have dominated the city for somewhere between 70 and 80 years. In other words, whether it will be a revolution. Yes, exactly. The last thing the city council, the now sitting city council, did before they left office is pass a kind of an urban development bill for this part of Chicago called Lincoln Yards. You know, basically, there's a policy called tax increment financing, where you kind of give public monies to private actors to develop areas. And this whole insurgent group was outside of City Hall with a, tons and tons of protesters speaking out against this particular policy. And they passed it, regardless of the thousands and thousands of people yelling outside of the doors. So I think it's a really big challenge about how, you know, there's six out of 50, so it's not a big group. It's not this, a revolution this yet. It's not a revolution yet. There's a lot, and how they'll manage to use or use their kind of relationships to social movements uh, to bring power on the streets to bear on um, elections. And then I think, you know, there's this Chicago's a very interesting place in the sense that you know, it's a big city, very diverse. It doesn't look like Trump country necessarily. So in what sense this is a model for the rest of the country is up for question too. I think there are some really interesting connections movements are making with each other. So Chicago Teachers Union had a very early strike in 2012, and they've been kind of sharing strategies, tactics with folks in West Virginia and LA. So that's one kind of national network of kind of teachers unions talking to each other about how you think a strategy that's not just focused on, you know, the bargaining table, but has a kind of broader political project in mind. Another kind of force we haven't talked much about here is uh, the Working Families Party, which is kind of labor funded, has often run candidates within the Democratic Party, so tried to back folks in in primaries. And they have a variety of like local versions of that, including in places like West Virginia, where they're trying to capitalize on these kind of new energies on the ground and try to think about how you might turn that into kind of electoral victories. I'm going to ask one last question. It's coming back to the person we should call Bernie Sanders. If he wins the nomination, should he 
accept and embrace the fact that he has to run as a socialist, that that word will be attached to him, or will he need to distance himself from it? Can can he can he run as a socialist? On the other hand, can he not run as a socialist? I don't think he'll be able to not run as a socialist. I think the question becomes: How does he fill up the content of of the, of the word of the word? Uh, and that would be an interesting process because socialists everywhere are unsure of what socialism looks like. Uh, the formula, the recipe for decades was if you get into power as a socialist, you nationalize everything, you take, take things over, you make it the property of the people, and you express the will of the people through government. I think now there's a sense that that socialist strategy was a failure, that you cannot substitute government entirely for market forces. So one of the challenges, and I think this process has got to go on anyway, because there's got to be a reform of capitalism process that emerges over the next five or 10 years. It's already been emerging. So the question becomes, and this is something Sanders and Warren are both deeply involved in, how do you regulate 21st capitalism in the in the people's interest? And that is, that's the greatest challenge. And, and so the challenge for Sanders in the campaign and Warren in the campaign is, and after, it's the same challenge is to, to define what that means. And the discussion and the debate between them, I think, will be very interesting precisely because they are trying to distinguish themselves from each other. Let them put all these ideas in play and let other people begin talking about them and let there be a discussion and discourse about it and push it forward. Yeah, I I agree with that. I don't think he can disavow his socialism. I would like to see this word get fleshed out more. I think one thing we haven't talked as much about here is you know, it's important also that both of them have a kind of vision of what foreign policy looks like, right? That the kind of domestic policy questions have really dominated the discussion thus far. And I really don't think we can do democratic socialism or even social democracy in America without fundamentally rethinking American power on the global stage. And that has had much less kind of conversation. And then I think the other question is, what are going to be the social forces outside of the White House, outside of Congress, that will bring the kind of pressure to bear to push this agenda forward? And I think what kinds of coalitions are possible, where the movements are at in this moment is a on the national stage, I think is a question still. We'll tweet the links to some of the things we mentioned in this podcast, including the map in Gary Gerstle's textbook. Adam Getachew's new book is called World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, and the link to that also will be at tppodcast underscore. Next week, we're going to be talking to Tom Holland, the historian of the ancient world, ancient Rome, and much else besides. And we'll be talking to him about political turmoil then and now. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Sanders? Sanders? Sanders. Sanders. (laughs) You can leave that in. Bernie, if he wins the nomination... You've got the loudest... I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm going to not touch it anymore. 